Well, our time in the Word tonight is going to revolve around the questions that you have turned in, and not only turned in today, but as you know, if you were here a couple weeks ago, it was our intention then to have Bible question and answer, uh, but uh, the service got a little long with the other things that were going on, and so we only had a couple questions. Therefore, we pushed them off to tonight and then got some more to the, today. All that to say that we probably have more questions than we've ever had on a Q&A, which means... I'm going to be flying through them, okay? This is going to be a jet tour through your questions, and uh, we won't have as much time to turn to them as we do sometimes, but I will try to make mention of some passages. Uh, Maybe you can jot down if you want to pursue them further. So the first question is from Revelation chapter 21. If you want to turn to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. And John says in chapter 21, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And the question that was turned in was, Pastor Brian, can you explain why a new heaven is is stated in Revelation 21.1? I understand why there needs to be a new earth, but why a new heaven? Does it have to do with what it says in the last part of Ephesians 6.12 against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places? And I would answer, yes, I think you are thinking down the right path. We understand why there needs to be a new earth. We understand how sin has tainted this earth, but maybe we don't really think about how sin has tainted heaven. Sounds strange for us to even suggest such a thing, but the fact is uh, sin has not only tainted heaven, the earth, it has tainted heaven. Even in the book of Job, you remember how the opening of the book of Job uh, uh, unfolds? It says there was this day when the Bene Elohim, in Hebrew, the sons of God, spirit beings gathered before the Lord, and Satan was there among them. Have you considered my servant Job? So Satan has access into heaven, and contrary to popular thinking, uh, he will continue to have some access to heaven until... Until we see what is described in Revelation chapter 12 at the midpoint of the tribulation period when there will be this cosmic battle and Satan will then be thrown out of heaven and John says that he comes to the earth with great fury because he knows his time is short. He knows now that his time is limited. So uh, even the heavens, there's a sense in which even the heavens have been tainted by sin. And in fact, this morning after church, someone asked me a question about Uh, when did sin really enter this world? And and my answer was, well, two parts. Sin entered the universe when Satan fell. Sin entered the human race when Adam and Eve fell. So already before sin entered the human race through uh, through their rebellion, there was sin in the universe because Satan and his angels had sinned. Presumably, that took place in the heavenly realm. So John sees a new heaven and a new earth There will be a new heaven, a new earth for eternity, unstained by sin, untainted by sin. In addition to a new heaven and a new earth, John tells us here in chapter 21, there will be a new Jerusalem, which the way the wording is is stated seems to indicate that it will be suspended between heaven and earth. The new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. So sometimes we say, well, in eternity, when we spend eternity in heaven, we all know what we mean by that. But technically... We may not spend eternity in heaven. We'll spend eternity in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. There really will be no difference between them. 
They will all be perfect. They will all be magnificent. And there will be freedom to go between heaven, earth, and the new Jerusalem. All right, next question says this. uh, Pastor Brian, where did the idea of baptism originate? Did it start with John the Baptist, or was it prophesied in the Old Testament? If so, where? John 1.24 seems to imply that the Pharisees were mentally prepared for Christ, uh, Elijah, and or the prophet to baptize. Well, let me answer the first part of that question. Uh, From the best we can tell, you're right, you don't find the ordinance of baptism in the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament, John is practicing that ordinance, the baptism of repentance. So where did it come from? The only obvious answer is it originated in the intertestamental period. And we know that to be the case. It came in the intertestamental period. It came from the Jewish people. Actually, whenever someone wanted to become a, a Gentile, wanted to become a Jewish proselyte, he had to go through a three-step process. The Jews called this milah, tebilah, and korban. First was milah. This was circumcision. All Gentile men who wanted to become a part of the people of God, who wanted to become Jewish, had to be circumcised regardless of their age. This was an act to show that they realized that they were sinful at the very level of their nature. And by this, the Gentile admitted his root sinfulness. Then there was tebilah. Tebilah was immersion into water to depict the willingness of the Gentile to die to his Gentile world and his desire to be given new resurrection life among the people of God. That was called tebilah. Then the third phrase, korban, this, this step involved an animal sacrifice. When the Gentile offered the sacrifice, the blood of the animal, animal would be sprinkled on him to symbolize cleansing from sin. And from the best we can tell, that was actually the beginning of baptism. It wasn't something then that God, uh, that God commanded. It was just something that was part of the Jewish culture for a Gentile to become a proselyte. However, John the Baptist obviously picked up on that because his baptism of repentance was very similar to this, but the difference was he demanded that Jewish people be baptized, which was unheard of, because this was something for Gentiles. But he demanded that Jewish people be baptized as an admission uh, of the need to die and, and their willingness to die to their old life, to repent of their sin, etc. Now, lest you think, well, hold it. If it wasn't something originally commanded by God, it was something the Jewish people did, and John picked up on maybe it really didn't carry any authority. Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And here we have an amazing statement. It's a remarkable statement. It says in in Luke 7.30, But the Pharisees, or verse 29, When all the people heard Jesus talking about John, uh, even the tax collectors justified or declared the righteousness of God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees... And lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. Look at that. They rejected God's will for themselves, not having been baptized by John. That is a strong verse saying that it was the will of God for the people to be baptized by John. So it originated in the Jewish culture, in this this system, this uh, proselyte process. John picked up on it and used it uh, not only among Gentiles but Jews. The next question related is, did Jesus baptize? John 3.22 implies that he did, but John 4 states only his disciples baptized. Well, Jesus did not actually do the baptizing 
understandably why, we know why, because people would attach salvation to it, wrong significance. But John 3 does say that Jesus made sure that all his followers were baptized. He just had his disciples do it so that people would not attach any salvation significance to it if he himself did it. And then finally, in the New Testament, we see baptism by immersion in keeping with repentance. Historically, how or when did the church move towards infant baptism? Where did they, the idea originate? Uh, from the best I can tell, I read, went back this afternoon and read part of the Didache, which is a, a teaching of the early church. This is post-New Testament era. When they talk about baptism, it's clearly immersion. I, I continued this afternoon to track this on into the 2nd century, 3rd century, etc., and from the best I can tell, where it began to be practiced, not to say that there weren't maybe some occasions, but the, where it really began to be a practice was the early Middle Ages. So around 1,000, use that as a round number. Early Middle Ages, this practice of infant baptism came in, where it became a regular part or practice of the church. Where did the idea originate? I guess my only answer would be to that, not from Scripture. It didn't come from Scripture, um, uh, but, and it wasn't something that was practiced by the church as a whole for almost a thousand years. Uh, do we know if Adam and Eve ate of the tree of life before the fall? And the answer is no, we do not know because it's not stated in Scripture. But the implication is that they did not because the, the way the text seems to read is that the tree of life was, was uh, the fruit of it granted the person the ability to live forever. So even if they, had, if, if they had eaten of it, even though they later eat of the tr- ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the implication is they would have just lived forever in that sinful state, which of course is why God drove them from the garden after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so they would not partake of it and live forever in a sinful state. Now a lot of it's just conjecture and assumption we can't state definitively because the text doesn't, but the implication is they did not. Next passage, Isaiah 45, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. This is God's own self-description, description of himself here. You have some of these remarkable passages in the book of Isaiah in which God uh, describes himself, his own character, etc. And here God says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And here's the question, very difficult one, very important one. Did God purposefully create evil? Or did he only allow it because he made the angels and mankind with the ability to choose? My perplexity comes in part from Isaiah 45, 7. And I would say of the two choices you've given there that I would... I would definitely think the second half of your question is the one most accurate. Uh, it's interesting. I, I just, when I got this question, I, I decided just to consult all of our major English translations. Uh, King James, New King James, NASB, ESV, NIV, all of that. And I think rightly so. Uh, I didn't find any of them that translated this Hebrew word, uh, this Hebrew word ra, which can be translated in some context evil, None of them went with that translation. And I think rightly so. Instead, they use some term like calamity, which the word ra, the Hebrew word, can be used depending on context to refer to disaster, evil. It's a, it's a pretty broad term. And I think the translators rightly were very careful not 
to attribute to God as the source of evil. God is not the source of evil. Now, did God ordain evil? Absolutely. If he did not ordain it, it would not be in existence. It wouldn't be a part of, of the human race. It wouldn't have been uh, allowed, etc. So you say, did he make the angels of mankind with the ability to choose? Obviously he did. He made both angels and people as volitional beings. Volitional meaning the ability to choose. Satan and his angels chose to rebel. Adam and Eve chose to sin. Uh, but I think you need to be very careful, even though we understand God's sovereignty over all and that evil would not be here if it weren't for the fact that God ordained it as a part of his master plan. But Scripture is very careful not to impugn God or accuse God or attribute to God evil. And again, I think our English translators were rightly very careful here to not say God is the one who did, is responsible for evil. Uh, Satan is responsible for evil. Adam and Eve are responsible for their sin. Uh, God is ordained. Uh, God has ordained it. He is over it. He certainly allowed it. But just be very careful about your statements of attributing to God evil as the source of evil. There is no evil in God. James says he doesn't tempt anyone with evil. He can't be tempted. There is no evil in God whatsoever. So just be careful in your wording of your theology in trying to grapple with the fact that God obviously had to plan for it, ordain it, allow it, uh, but don't blame him for it. So be very, very careful. A next question, we don't have to turn to it because the person, well, let's turn to it. Second Chronicles 16, because I think just looking at it may help. Second Chronicles 16, verse 12. And it reads, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord but the physicians. And the question is, in Second Chronicles 16.12, King Asa acquires a foot disease, and even in his disease he did not seek the Lord but sought help from the physicians. Is this verse saying that by seeking help from the physicians, Asa wasn't seeking God? No, it's not saying that. Notice very specifically, the first statement is, he did not seek, even in this, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. And then, secondly, uh, or was he only trusting the physicians and not God? Yes, the wording is very clear. Uh, think about it this way. Obviously, we should seek the Lord all the time. But there is something about tragedy that does drive us deeper to the Lord. And the, the, the point that the writer is trying to make here is that even in this very severe uh, condition he had, even that wasn't enough to drive him to seek the Lord. But instead of seeking the Lord, which he should have done, he just turned to physicians, which wasn't wrong in and of itself, but he did not seek the Lord. So I don't, I'm not sure if you're wrestling with, probably, wondering, well, is this sort of somehow implying that going to physici physicians is wrong? Uh, all you have to do is consult Colossians 4, where Paul is giving a list of people who helped him in his ministry, and he makes the statement, Luke, the beloved physician, is with me, or he greets you. So that shows there's no contradiction, obviously, with uh, 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 a doctor, being a doctor, going to doctors, but the, the condemnation here is he did not even think about turning to the Lord in the midst of his severe malady, but just thought, well, instead of seeking the Lord, I'm just going to go to doctors uh, that is the, a totally inappropriate response of any one who claims to belong to the Lord. We always turn to the Lord, and we have beloved physicians. 
just like Luke, that the Lord would uh, make such a statement about. All right, next question, Luke 22, over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Actually, we have two questions kind of back-to-back here um, about the same topic, so I'll kind of read them together. Luke 22, this is, of course, when our Lord was being arrested uh, unjustly, and we read in verse 36, but now... Then he said to them, But now he who has money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have, uh, have an end. And so they said, Lord, look, here we have two swords. And he said to them, This is very difficult to translate. My translation says, It is enough. So that's, a, that's plenty of swords. Some translations, enough with this talk. Like it's something totally wrong that they said, which is a viable translation. And this leads right into his arrest in the garden. So verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. And then verse 47, he's betrayed by Judas and arrested. And so the question is, or the two questions by separate individuals, why did Jesus tell the disciples to get swords, especially when he told them to put them away later? Remember when Peter took out his, his sword? And then the qu- other question, how common was it in Jesus' day for people to carry swords would it have been unusual for Peter to have a sword with him at Jesus' arrest? And the answer to that last question is no, it would not have been unusual at all because it was very common to carry swords. Now, not don't picture in your mind those long sort of swords like you carry on a horse. You know, it was a, called a ramphaya in Greek. Not the long, broad sword, but the little machaira, almost like a knife, uh, a miniature sword. It was still called a sword, uh, but it was only about 18 inches long, and it was very common. Uh, for people to carry those, because they weren't merely used for, uh, for war purposes. It was a multi-purpose tool, sort of uh, like someone using a knife today. You could use it to cut things. You can use it to do a lot of different things. And so it would not have been uncommon. But the reason why Jesus told them to put them away is because, evidently, from this statement, they assumed wrongly that Jesus was condoning them using their swords to defend him and using their swords for military or criminal purposes or whatever, which was not the case. And so Jesus told them to put them away. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. If that's the way you live your life, uh, you end up dying that way. So there was nothing wrong inherently with Peter having a sword or this little, you know, this long knife, miniature sword, etc., or any of them. But when they go to use them for purposes, wrong purposes, that's where the rebuke comes in. Okay, next question says, In Noah's day, during the flood, would only two of each kind of fish survive? What about ducks, alligators, and such that can swim? Well, the short answer to this question is simply, God made sure to bring two of every kind on the ark that would not have survived outside of it. I think that's the easiest way to answer. I don't know that we could specify every uh, specific kind or species or whatever, but God made sure to preserve animal life to bring on board at least two of every kind so that they would survive. So the fish that would survive, they obviously didn't need to be brought on board. Uh, alligators, I don't know if they were brought on board or not. Uh, they can swim. Could they have survived the, not only the massive nature of the flood, but the, uh, the uh, huge uh, uh, volcanic uh, activity that was going on? So if it wouldn't survive, God made sure that it was brought on board. Uh, Next question, all the way over to the book of Jude at the end of the New Testament, second to the last book of the Bible, Jude. 
verse 8. Jude, verse 8. Here, as uh, Jude is condemning false teachers, uh, he says this of them, Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of, and now different English translations, dignitaries, glorious ones, spiritual beings, some translations. It probably is a reference to spirit beings of some kind. So the question that is asked is, what is the blasphemy of the false teachers concerning the spiritual beings? Well, since Jude doesn't tell us specifically, we can't say definitively, but we can say a couple things about this. He goes on to talk about Michael in the very next verse, not bringing a railing accusation or a reviling accusation against Satan, but rather simply saying, the Lord rebuke you. So it seems that he's implying with verses 8 and 9 together, side by side, that these false teachers were doing what Michael would not even dare to do, that is to bring a reviling accusation against Satan or other spirit beings, demonic beings. So from that, that connection, it appears that what Jude is referring to is the audacity of false teachers to say things to or about Satan and demons that even Michael the archangel would not dare say. Now, you may be wondering, hold it, well, what would that look like? I, I don't know what it looked like in the first century, but I can tell you what it looks like today. Because we do have false teachers who do this very thing. If you've ever listened to enough false teachers, uh, it's very obvious that they rail against Satan. They, they get up in the pulpit and they talk to Satan and they say, Satan, go to hell. And demons, you get out of here. You go to hell. You, you have no power. They bring railing accusations. They do what even Michael the archangel would not dare to do. And many in the sort of word of faith movement who have this view that you have inherent power in your words think that with your words you can command Satan, command demons, say things to them. And it is, uh, as Jude says here, uh, they, they, are, they blaspheme or speak evil of. Uh, they, they go way beyond what they ought to say in relation to spirit beings, namely demonic, and, uh, demonic beings and Satan himself. So, it's happening in our day. It's very common. Maybe it looked the same uh, in Jude's day, or maybe it looked different. He's not, he doesn't tell us specifically, but we certainly have a picture of it in our day and age. It is all too common. If you want to turn on, I put the term in quote, Christian television, you don't have to watch very long, and you'll probably see uh, someone doing that very kind of thing. All right, next passage, Matthew 7. Back to the very first book of the New Testament. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7. And Jesus, as he describes the final judgment, says in verse 22 of Matthew 7, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And the question that is asked, does this passage imply that these unbelievers had actually accomplished these signs through the power of Jesus' name? Or did they not really do these things? Uh, I would answer it a little, neither, with neither answer you set forth. Uh, did it actually imply that they accomplished these signs? Yes, I think it does clearly imply that. Jesus does not take issue with their assertion that they did all of these things. But I would not agree that they did these things through the power of Jesus' name. They're clearly unbelievers because he says to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. 
So I think that what you have here is another example of what Paul describes. We won't turn to it. You can jot it down in 2 Thessalonians 2, where he talks about in the end times that miracles will be done during the tribulation period. And interestingly, as Paul describes the miracles that are going to take place in the end times, he uses the exact three terms that are used in the New Testament to describe the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. Signs, wonders, miracles. He uses the same term, but he puts in front of it lying signs, wonders, etc. So does this passage imply that these unbelievers had done these things? Yes. Not, not through Christ or by Christ. Uh, did they really do them? Yes. And Satan can do them. Satan is a great counterfeiter. Second Thessalonians 2 says that it will be multiplied in the end times. And this is just another passage that reminds us that everything, everything that is claimed to be miraculous in or under the umbrella of Christianity, beloved, is not from the Lord. It's not. And in fact, if you think about it, just think with me about this. What other era... What other era could be more characterized by people who would make such a claim than this era? Just go back in church history. First century, second, third, fourth. You didn't didn't have the mass of Christianity claiming to do miracles and cast out demons and all of the things that are, are the norm. As I said this morning, probably the majority of Christianity, if you look worldwide, the majority of Christianity... Not saying if it's all true Christians or not, but the majority of Christianity today probably falls into the category of Christian life revolving around supposed miracles, healings, tongues, the very things that these people will claim. It's remarkable to me that there's not more of a wake-up that this, these verses apply more to the 21st century than they would have ever applied in any other time in history. And yet Christians continue to believe that anybody who makes a claim that something's miraculous, it must be true. It's not always true. Not often true. All right, next question says this. Uh, Last Sunday, actually this is now three Sundays ago since I didn't get the question. During your message on Philemon, you presented us with a sticky situation but never told us what the seminary professor said. What did he say? Now, if you were here, you remember... The convoluted mess of the husband who married the other wife, the wife who married the other husband of this poor young couple, etc. And you know, honestly, I can't specifically remember what he did say. I know. Listen, I jotted it down, but I'm almost certain this is what he said because I talked to someone else. I said, You remember me relaying this story to you years ago? And what did you remember that, that he, the final outcome was? And, and this is what I remember too that basically what he said to these, these two had gotten married, was you need to break that marriage and remarry your first partner because you had no grounds to do what you did. Do it and don't tell anybody you're doing it because you are going to get all kinds of mixed counsel on it if you do. So he just basically said, if you want to ask my opinion, that's what you ought to do. But the more you ask people, the more you're putting yourself under fire. So I think that's what he said, and I, I don't know that I could argue with the counsel. So... All right, next question says this. Dear Pastor Brian, I have a mature Christian friend who tells me that yoga is bad because it postures worship various uh, Hindu gods. As a believer in one true God, I always felt this situation similar to eating meat offered to idols. I'm wondering, though, if I cause others to stumble when I use yoga postures. Your thoughts, please. Well, I think you've probably thought of a good parallel. I don't think that you can say, you know, certain exercise. This is a big debate, by the way. A lot of this goes on, not, not only with yoga, but other things. 
you know, yoga has certainly spiritual, a lot of spiritual overtones, implications, etc. But a lot of it is just exercise, stretching, etc. So we're not going to say that there's anything inherently wrong with, you know, if you're going to lie on the floor and bend your leg up over your neck or something like that. If you can do that, more power to you. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, but, but when you, you know, it's sort of like this, a lot of Christians have wrestled with the same thing in relation to like karate. Because karate in and of itself, you know, breaking boards, breaking cinder blocks and doing, you know, all these moves, etc. is a great exercise. But it's like, what about all the Eastern religious connections? And so there's, there's a lot of wrestling. So I like your parallel here that, that inherently there's nothing wrong with stretching. Now, even if the stretches happen to come out of the, you know, Eastern mysticism or whatever, there's nothing inherently wrong with stretching, just like there's nothing inherently wrong with meat that is offered to idols, even though idols, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, that behind idols are demons. Still, there's nothing inherently wrong, but, but you, it is wise what you're saying here to be sensitive to others because if it's something that would uh, bother their conscience, just like it in the first century, understandably, there were Christians who were bothered by meat offered to idols. Listen, if you were saved out of a life of idolatry, it is completely understandable that you could never go to the meat market and buy meat offered to idols. Totally understandable. Because you, you would always make that connection. You'd feel like you're supporting idolatry. And so if someone was saved out of Eastern mysticism, yoga and all of these things, and, and they, were, they were worshiping uh, as a part of their exercise, Hindu gods, etc., they probably can never overcome that, even though stretching and exercise that is similar is not wrong. So your sensitivity to them is probably good. And so I would say, just as Paul says on the meat offered idols, eat it without broadcasting. Uh, don't, don't flaunt it. Don't hurt your neighbor's conscience, your, your brother in Christ. So if you want to do these stretches, maybe you stretch at home. You know that you don't even know what the postures are, where they came from, but they're good stretches. But be careful about sharing your liberty if it's going to cause a brother or sister to stumble. So I, I like your parallel. Good thoughts on that. All right, next question says this. Uh, Brian, can you give more thought to what you said this morning? Now, again, this was a couple weeks ago. About the power to cast out demons is, is only given by Jesus to certain believers. Yes. What I was saying is that in Matthew 10, when Jesus sent his apostles out, his disciples, and they're called apostles there, he gave them power over unclean spirits. And the comment I made is that if he gave that to them then, then they didn't inherently have it as believers because they were already believers by that point. And by the way, if we had time, we could go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, same thing, where Jesus sends out the 70, and they come back surprised. Lord, even the spirits are subject to us in your name. Implying they didn't, that's not something they expected. It wasn't something inherent in them being believers. And you even have an example in Luke 9 where... I believe it's John, Mark says, no, not John, Mark, the Apostle John says, Lord, we saw, we were out, we saw some people casting out demons in your name, and we decided to forbid them. And Jesus said, don't forbid them. Don't forbid them to do that. So uh, my point is, were there examples, the Apostles, the 12, uh, the, the 70 in Luke's Gospel, these other two, uh, did they have power to cast out demons? Absolutely. The text says they did. But my statement was that, it is not something inherent to being a believer. In each of these cases, the Lord, the, the clear statement in Matthew 10 is the Lord granted it. The clear implication in, in Luke's gospel is the 70 didn't know they had it, and then they were surprised that they had that power. 
And thus it's safe to conclude that in Luke 9, whoever these were, and they're not identified, the Lord had given them that power. So my point is just that I don't know of any passage in the New Testament that would state we have that same kind of, let me call it apostolic power, to be able to cast out a demon with a word. So the question that is asked, well, what, does, uh, what about John 14 where Jesus said, uh, he who believes in me will do even greater works. Yes, Jesus did say that. But understand that when Jesus says that greater works would be done by his followers, he is not talking about greater works in kind, but rather in scope. There, there's no, Jesus raised the dead. There's nothing greater in kind that could be done than that. So he's not talking about greater in kind, but greater in scope. For example, just one example. Acts 2, day of Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people are saved. We have no record anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus ever preached, and even 300 people were saved, let alone 3,000 people were saved. So it is true that the followers of Jesus, once the Holy Spirit came, did greater works, greater in scope, not greater in kind. So the follow-up question to that is, well, what hope is there today for the demon-possessed person. The hope is, a couple passages you can jot down, Mark 9, 29, Jesus talked about someone being delivered through prayer. So through prayer, and then James 4, 7, and 8, because even a demonized person, usually, even though the demon will take over often, a demonized person still has his thinking capabilities, and you can talk with and interact with a demon-possessed person. Jesus did it. So you can talk to the person and share with him or her James 4, 7, and 8, which says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what hope is there for the demon-possessed person today? The hope is found in believers who will pray with that person, pray for that person, and give that person biblical instruction how they can resist the devil by drawing near to God. So is it possible today for a Christian just to speak a word and the demon to leave? Uh, possibly. But I'm not convinced biblically that we have any statement that guarantees that same apostolic power. So that if I were to confront a demonized person today, I would pray. I wouldn't talk to the demon. Uh, I, I wouldn't do what we were just looking at earlier in, in Jude 8 and bring some reviling accusation against the demon and talk to him. I would talk to the Lord. Lord, release this person, deliver this person, and talk to the person and say, God's word tells you if you will draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you will resist the devil, he will flee from you. That is the way I would handle it, not thinking I have the same power Jesus had or the apostles or those that were sent out by him to be able to speak a word and assume that that same power uh, is given to every... The, 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 the issue I was hitting is the, I think, wrong assumption that every Christian automatically has that power. So that's, that's the issue. Our next question says this, I don't know how to react to blatant homosexual behavior. People say you should just tolerate it, not say anything. Is that saying it's okay? Is it saying I don't care? I'm not hateful. I'm not homophobic, yet people think it's acceptable. It reminds me of the ten toes of clay and iron. Our country is to that point. I pray the Lord will save us from ourselves. 
Well, you know, the, the question you ask here is one that we all wrestle with. It's not just the issue of homosexual behavior. Everyone in this room probably has been in situations where you're asking the Lord for wisdom on how to react. It's not just homosexual behavior. Who hasn't been in a, you know, in a work setting and the people are bragging about the last Friday night's party when they were all drunk and wasted and involved in immorality or, or students, uh, you know, bragging about how they cheated and stole the answers for the test you know, or people on your football team or on your basketball team or your sports team talking about their sinful escapades. I mean, we, this is, we all live in this world. So we understand this. And there's not a sort of cut and dried answer. This is exactly how you respond in every situation. The way we're supposed to respond is we're certainly supposed to be salt. We're certainly supposed to be light. We're certainly supposed to be a contrast. We, we don't want our actions to say it's okay. In other words, people that tell dirty jokes, don't laugh at them. That's saying that it's okay. You're just joining in. Uh, should you rebuke them? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, you know, if they're unbelievers, they're going to live like unbelievers. So maybe rebuking them isn't really the, the, the wisest thing to do. But, but you know, there's, there's no pat answer to your question. Uh, we just seek the Lord for wisdom in every situation that we encounter. But we all get in these situations with family members, with friends, people in the neighborhood, people at work, people in the class, people on the sports team. And so we want to be salt. We want to be light. We don't want to say it's okay. We don't want to say, and I appreciate you saying here, we don't want to say we're hateful. Especially we don't want to say we're going we're gonna to zero in on one sin, homosexuality, and say that's the worst of all. And so we'll target that one. That's not the right message to send. So we just send the message that, you know what? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Jesus came to save sinners. That's the kind of message we want to send. But, but you know, it's, it's, not a, it's, you know, it's not just a, an easy question to answer because there are so many dynamics. depends on who it is, the relationship you have with them, conversations you've had in the past, so many different things. Our next question says, uh, Why does God use the picture of clothing Israel in linen and silk? when the mixed materials are a violation of his own law, Ezekiel 16, 10, and 13. Well, I'm, I looked this up, and I'm not sure uh, what, what the, the prohibition in the law was you cannot wear a garment with two types of mixture. In other words, 50% cotton, 50% polyester. You couldn't do that. But I'm not sure that it was a statement that you could not wear a garment like, let's, let's say, a cotton shirt and a polyester pair of pants. Not that they had polyester back then, but you know what I'm saying. In other words, it wasn't saying either that it was a sin if you had two fields to plant barley in one and, and wheat in the other, but you can't mix them in the field. So there really is no violation there. One, I'm not even sure that linen and silk would be a violation, or if it's just describing the kind of clothing, not necessarily uh, you know, what the material was made of. But even if it was... Uh, it's not necessarily a violation anymore. It would be a violation to plant your two fields with two different kinds of seed, but the mixing of them is what God prohibited in his law. Uh, next question says, has anyone ever seen God's face? Some believers think Adam and Eve saw him because he walked with them in the garden. Could that have been the pre-incarnate Christ? Absolutely, it could have been the pre-incarnate Christ uh, because many times in the Old Testament, uh, some of the stories we read, we assume it's God the Father, but later we find out it wasn't. Example, Isaiah 6. If you consult John 12, Isaiah 6, you remember God, uh, I saw the Lord high and holy and lifted up, etc. And we think, oh, this is Yahweh, God the Father. But in John 12, that's specifically stated of Christ's glory that Isaiah saw. So they're interchangeable because of the Trinity. So it could have been the pre-incarnate Christ. If it were God the Father, uh, seeing his face would probably not be the most accurate way to describe it. Because according to John 4, God is spirit. 
And it won't be until eternity that we see God's face. So uh, the fact that Adam and Eve walked with him in the garden would not necessitate God having any type of form unless, as you point out, it was the pre-incarnate Christ who often appeared in human form in the Old Testament era. All right, next question says, please talk about the difference between a critical spirit and spiritual discernment. Some people are more sensitive to details than others. This sounds like criticism to the less discerning or the, the more sensitive. And you're right. You've worded the question so well. Again, this is not a question that's easy to answer from the standpoint. You just can't give a soundbite answer. Uh, we are called in Scripture to be uh, discerning. Repeatedly, we're called to be discerning. And we are told in, in Matthew 7 not to be hypercritical. Uh, which is translated judgmental, but it doesn't mean make no judgment because throughout Scripture we're told to make judgments, but we are warned about being hypercritical. So we understand that, okay? So we understand here are the parameters that the Lord calls us to. Don't be hypercritical slash judgmental, but be discerning. Don't be naive. Don't, uh, don't believe everything. And don't uh, hold to everything that everyone would want you to hold to. So that, those are the parameters. Now, where you land in between there is difficult because, as you say, some people, some people are so wrongly sensitive that if you say anything, I mean, sometimes if I say something about a cult, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, people, are, people come to me afterwards, oh, you shouldn't do that. That is so judgmental. And yet cults uh, have damning doctrine. We're not just talking about, you know, a difference between pre-trib rapture and mid-trib. We're talking about doctrine that damns people to hell. And if I say something about people, say, oh, that's judgmental. Well, that's, frankly, honestly, that's not judgmental. That's just being biblically accurate and discerning. So you're right. Some people will call you judgmental if you try to exercise any discernment. But it is true that if you try to be discerning, so please hear this, because I I exhort of us as a congregation often to be discerning, so here's a warning to us. If you try to be discerning, you have to be very careful about not being hypercritical and judgmental and picking apart everybody who doesn't dot every I exactly like you do or cross every T exactly like you do. So be careful with it, and, and you're right. You, sometimes you can't win in this because if you're just trying to be biblical, you're accused of being judgmental. But on the other hand, sometimes we maybe go beyond just being biblical and we are hypercritical. So th those, are the, those are the parameters that we try to fall within that Scripture would give us. Next question. When Jesus cleansed the leper in Mark 1, that's from this morning. Did, this is from a little one. Did he get his fingers and toes back? Well, first of all, we don't know that he didn't have fingers and toes. You remember I said that if it was very, if it had digressed for a long time, then they would often uh, lose their fingers and toes, either from the, the flesh being eaten away uh, or them rubbing it off themselves. What I didn't mention this morning, but I, uh, someone reminded me of, is that I read a book a few years ago by uh, a doctor who had worked in leper colonies, said that the other thing, especially in third world countries, uh, lepers, because they have no feeling, often at night, little creatures eat their fingers and toes, and they don't feel it. They don't know. So they lose it both from their own rubbing, and they're not aware, uh, the, the, the flesh-eating nature of leprosy, and even... Uh, creatures or, or little animals will do that. So we don't know. We're not told in Mark 1, but the implication of the passage clearly is that Jesus healed him thoroughly. So if he didn't have full fingers and toes, then the implication is that his healing was complete and he did get that. All right, next question says this. 
you use the phrase often in Sunday morning when we go to prayer, the throne of grace. What a beautiful word picture. Can you expound? Yes, that picture comes out of Hebrews 4.16. You can jot that down. Where we are told to come boldly to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. That's the exact phrase that the writer of Hebrews uses in Hebrews 4.16. So that's where it comes from. And he uses that phrase to refer to prayer coming to the throne of grace. All right, next question says this. Where was sin before it came into the world? First John says sin is lawlessness. Is this a concept? Genesis 3, we see sin coming in through Adam and Eve's sin. Romans 5 attributes it through Adam. So where was sin before it came into the world? Well, it wasn't before it came into the world. Sin is not an entity. It's not a substance. It's not like it is something that had uh, already had existence or life. It is, as you indicate, it is lawlessness. So when Satan and his angels rebelled, they brought sin into the spirit world. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the human race and to uh, planet Earth. But it did not exist prior to that. Because again, it's not an entity or a substance or something that was sitting out there and then all of a sudden it, it sort of was planted into. It, it only came, became a reality when Satan and the demons, or, or, or Satan and the angels sinned and when Adam and Eve sinned. So that's when it came into being, just as long as you understand that phrase, came into being, doesn't imply it's a substance or an entity. That's when it came to be. Maybe that would be a better phrase to use. All right, next question says, how does the triune God work? How is one God, a father, his own son, and a spirit at once or at the same time? The way this question is worded, probably the, the struggle you're having is, is that you're assuming that there, that being one God there's only one person. That isn't true. It is true that there is only one God, but the Bible is clear that this one God exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are equal in substance or essence, but distinct in subsistence. So how is one God a father and his son and spirit at once? Well, it's not really accurate to say one God is a father and a son. That's almost what is known as the doctrine of modalism that says there's only one God and one person who plays three parts, father, son, and spirit. That's not biblically accurate. There's not one person who plays three roles. There are three distinct persons equal in essence and substance. Uh, next question says, where was I before I was born or on earth. You weren't before you were. Uh, you, you were in your mother's womb before you were born, but that's it. You, you did not exist before uh, the sperm and the egg uh, came together for fertilization, and at that point you became a living being. There is no such thing as the pre-existence of people prior to conception. The only person who had pre-existence was the Lord Jesus because he existed from all eternity and his humanity was conceived in Mary, but that's not when he became a person. He was always a person. That's not true of us. We become a person at conception. So where were you before you were born? Well, for nine months you were in your mother's womb. Prior to that, you did not exist. No pre-existence. All right, next question says this. God knows all. Yes, he does. Why did he create Satan if he knew Satan would be bad? 
And why make him the most powerful being after God? The, the short answer, and it's a very short answer because this is a very long answer that you could give to this. But the short answer is that of all the options that God had at his disposal. In other words, he cre- think of it this way. God could have created heaven and earth and put people on planet earth with no spirit beings at all. No angels whatsoever because he created them. Or God could have created a universe and had only spirit beings, no human beings. He could have created a universe that had spirit beings and human beings, and the angelic beings fell and the human beings didn't fall. Or he could have had a world, you know, you know where I'm going. So he could have had one where the human beings fell and the, the spirit beings didn't. He, all of these options. But of all of the options, God's ordained plan was the one that was the best for his glory. That's the short answer. This plan... Creating, knowing Satan would, would did, did God know Satan would sin? Absolutely. And did he make him the most powerful being after God? Well, he certainly maybe isn't the most powerful because that's debate over his rank, Satan's rank in relation to Gabriel and Michael, but certainly very powerful. But this option, this plan that is in motion now is the one that is ultimately to the most, the most, uh, to the most uh, glory to be received by God from a plan, this particular plan. And some of these types of questions we're not going to be able to answer till eternity other than that. And it's not a cop-out because that's what Scripture says. It is for God's glory ultimately, but the specifics we just have to, you know, like Second Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Next question, why did Jesus pray to God when he was on earth and he is God in the flesh? And the answer to that is related to what I just said a moment ago, because Jesus is a distinct person from God the Father. They are not the same person, two distinct persons. And so when Jesus became a man and lived as a man here on the earth, he was dependent on his Father, thus he prayed to his Father. And the Father being a separate person, distinct person from the Son, the Son could pray to the Father. Uh, Next question, when you die, do you go directly to judgment? Or wait in the grave for his return and resurrection? Uh, yes, a little both. Let me explain. When you die, you, do, you go directly somewhere. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, If you're a Christian, absent from the body is present with the Lord. So the moment you die, Philippians 1.23, you depart and be with Christ. According to Luke 16, unbelievers who die immediately go to Hades. However, not the body, only the inner man. The body goes in the grave to await resurrection. So there will be a resurrection at some point that reunites body, soul, and spirit. And then the person will spend eternity, body, soul, and spirit, either with the Lord or in hell, the lake of fire. But you don't wait for your judgment in that sense because immediately when you die, you either go to Hades or to the Lord's presence. Then the body will be raised for a judgment. That's the final and eternal judgment. Uh, Next question. Two more. We're going to make it. Next question. What happened to all the people that died before Jesus came? Uh, The the short answer to that is, if they died believing in Yahweh, the true God, Genesis 15, 6, key verse to jot down, Abraham believed God and it was credited him to righteousness. Paul quotes that very verse in Romans 4 to say that is the means of salvation, whether you're talking Old Testament or New Testament. It's by grace through faith. So what happened to the people that died before Jesus came? If they died with, in, with genuine faith in God, they went to be with the Lord. That's why God would say, I am, not was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they were with him. Now, Paul does tell us in Romans 3, there's a sense in which 
their sins, since they had not been paid for, and I'm just sort of paraphrasing this, their sins were sort of put on hold until Jesus died to pay for them because their sins still had to be paid for by Christ. Look at Romans 3, 22 through 26, which, by the way, is next Sunday morning's Christmas message. That's the passage I'm going to use and explain it. But Paul does say that their, that their sins were not really finally dealt with until Jesus died. Nevertheless, they were saved by grace through faith. And the final question tonight is this. What happens to people who never learn about Jesus Christ, do they go to hell? And the answer to that is this, and please listen closely. People who die without hearing the gospel go to hell not because they never heard the gospel, but according to Romans 1, they go to hell because they do not even respond to the revelation that God gives them in creation to want to know the true God. So understand that. People are not condemned to hell because they never heard the gospel. They are condemned to hell because they are sinners who love sin and choose sin and don't want truth. And if Allah, just compare, not Allah, the God Allah, I'm using that, in other words, as a comparison, uh, but uh, in, in uh, Acts 10 with Cornelius, who was a Gentile, God-fearer, wanted to know the true God, God moved heaven and earth to get the gospel to him. So suffice it to say, please hear this, no one will ever be able to stand before God on Judgment Day and be able to rightly say this, Lord, if I'd have just heard the gospel, I would have accepted. But I'm going to hell because you didn't get me the gospel. No one will be able to say that, not rightly. People don't want the truth. They want sin. They want error. Romans 1 says people who've never heard are condemned not because they haven't heard the gospel, but because they reject the truth they have around them in creation and chapter 2 of Romans in conscience. If they would respond to that truth, God would get them more truth. All right, we're done. Great questions. Let's stand as we close in prayer. Father, thank you for our evening together. And even though we had to move rapidly because of the, the number of questions, still pray, Father, that Maybe some of the verses that were alluded to or maybe even read or referenced uh, would, would give more clarity and uh, information to help us understand these, these uh, issues, these concepts. Again, I thank you for the questions that were turned in uh, as, a, as a reflection of, of eager hearts desiring to know, desiring to understand, desiring to wrestle through truth and issues. And so pray that we would always be like the noble Bereans in Acts 17.11, to hear the word, to receive it with all readiness, and then search the scriptures to find out if these things are true. Dismiss us now with your presence in a unique way for us to be salt and light, even as we talked about earlier in the question that was turned in. As we go to our places of work and our athletic teams, our classes, our neighborhoods, or whatever it is, and we're all uh, we're often surrounded by people that don't know you and and talk in, in despicable ways and brag about things that are atrocious and, and say things that give us pause as far as knowing how to respond. Grant us wisdom. We want to be salt and light. We want to do, as Paul said to the Philippians, we want to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So grant us wisdom in how to respond, how to react, what to say, when not to say, all of those things, uh, so that we can maximize our our effectiveness of being your people in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.